The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. If you have a Bible, we are in uh, Genesis. We are in uh, the last half of chapter 2. I am going to read our passage for us and then pray for our time together. One thing that we do together is uh, we do Q&A after our sermon, and so if you have questions, those go straight to my phone. Um, I don't announce who's asked what questions, so they stay anonymous, but I see the questions, and if I can, I answer them. Um, If you have thoughts on Tom Brady retiring, that is not what I uh, engage with. (laughs) So um, if that is true or not, it's disputed at this point. Let me pray for, or read for us, and then pray. So this is at the end of God's creative activity here in the beginning of chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage... It seems like another reality. People who were made for each other, people who were made without shame, and people who lived before you and your providing care. And yet this is the world that you have made for us as men and women to be people before you, to enjoy being a community together. So I pray that you would be with us now as we look at this passage. And think about what it means for our lives with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I think this is one of those passages that's going to be very hard for us to see. Some of us were reading it and uh, immediately we're already kind of keyed in on this is one of those controversial passages. It's about men and women. It's about what God, how God made us and formed us differently. Or at a cultural level, we look at it and we think, oh, we're going to be asking the question, what is a man and what is a woman? And uh, certainly within the cultural discussion today, there is a great deal of uh, dialogue on that topic. And so it can be hard for us to see the passage for what it says. Um, It's a bit of like we're driving down the road and just having constant neon billboards calling us left and right. What is this passage leading us to believe and what is it getting co-opted for? So culturally speaking, we have difficulties seeing how did God make us? At church level, given whatever your experience is with church life, it can be difficult. How did God make us? We have all these questions that come into our minds, 
and they aren't just questions about something that's, you know, giving to the church or something like that. This is like our bodies. This is something very intimate to our personality and our personhood and what it means to be us. So what I want to do is once we get into this passage, I want to focus you in on verse 18 because we can easily kind of jump over it and getting into all the like the rib stuff. But I think verse 18 helps guide us through this passage. And then I'm going to uh, show my cards and tell you uh, somebody that's helped me out in this passage a lot. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And then when God says, I will make a helper fit for him, he is answering the question of aloneness. So when Adam, again, it's interesting, Adam isn't named until later in the passage in chapter three, but when the man is figuring out who he is before the Lord, the reality that he is alone, that he is a solitary, that he has nobody like him is the question that the passage is trying to answer. It's this aloneness that guides us. It's gonna be our Google GPS through the passage to understand what is going on in this passage. So when Adam is, in a certain sense, chapter one is the objective creating of humanity. And here in chapter two, we are engaging with the subjective reality of what it means to be human. And to be human, it is not good that he is alone. And so, We'll touch on a few bad ways that this passage has been uh, uh, engaged with or talked about, but what I really want us to see is this positive reality of how God has made us to enjoy being people together. So if you're looking for a main point, we are made to enjoy life-giving communion together is what this this passage is driving in on. Because as we're going to see, verse 18, it is not good that he is alone and God's solution is in the creation of a woman to be with this man. And so I think what we will be seeing is that we are made to enjoy life-giving communion together. Now, let me tell you, uh, as I was working through the commentaries on this passage, I found them all incredibly frustrating because they got uh, buckled in on all of the naming dynamics. Well, Adam named this, and so that means that he's got authority here. I just don't think that that lines up with verse 18 saying the banner of this passage is not good to be alone. So the person of all people that I found most helpful in this passage is a guy that you may have heard of by the name of Pope John Paul II. Um, He wrote a 700-page book called Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. And these were just like collections of lectures that he would give on like a Friday afternoon over like 15, 20 years or something like that. And they are like really helpful. Um, and I'm like, I can't believe the, like, I didn't know the Pope wrote a book on, like, first of all, I didn't even know that Popes wrote books. But uh, secondly, I didn't know that he had written a book on such a critical issue back in the 70s of all times. It's a 700 page book. So if that's too daunting for you, um, a guy by the name of uh, Timothy Tennant, um, who is, if I believe at one point, if, I don't know if he still is, he's the president of Asbury Seminary. Um, he wrote a book called For the Body, Recovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and the Human Body. And in the introduction for it, he says, look, point blank, I'm just stealing everything from Pope John Paul II. So this is just kind of like a layman's version of that book. So if you're looking for anything, that book is incredibly helpful. But what we want to do is we want to look through this passage and see how you are made to enjoy life-giving communion together. What I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, go through in kind of three steps of through this passage 
and then I'm going to reserve some commentary or application for this passage at the very end. Is that cool? All right. I'm going to pick up here in verse 18, and we're going to talk about, we're going to look at this and see our need for sameness. What does it mean to be a human created in the image of God, made to enjoy life-giving communion? We have an innate need for sameness. Verse 18. When the Lord God, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called them, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. See, the word helper here, when we talk about, you know, what is, that, what is it that God is searching for here? What is God uh, causing Adam to look for? What is the helper? We can hear that word and we can kind of think of like, oh, Adam's trying to figure out somebody to do Adam, or God's trying to find somebody to do Adam's laundry, like the help. You know, the help of the, the house or like the staff of, the, the, of Adam's operation to help get things done. And we have kind of like a demeaning kind of connotation to that word. Uh, it, it just a, one thing that's helpful on this is that the word helper here in Hebrew um, is used for God 16 of the 19 times that it appears in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. So of, this, of the 19 times that it shows up in the New Testament, this word helper, 16 of those are used to describe God. And I don't think that we would have a picture of God being like, you know, the laundry person in the house. This is God. It's a valuable um, reality where he comes alongside and completes. uh, So that's the the idea here of helper is a completing of what is lacking. And what is Adam lacking? He's lacking community. He is alone. That is the beginning of verse 18. He is absolutely alone. And I'm not exactly sure what this uh, trip to the zoo is all about. But, you know, Adam basically take, goes to the zoo, and God's kind of like, okay, it's going to go through, and there's no plaques for names, so it may come up with names for these zoo animals, whoever they are. Um, and is it like a test to be like, well, what's Adam going to name them? Or is it kind of like, is Adam going to come to the realization of like, well, they've all got pairs, and I don't? Like, I'm not exactly sure what the mechanics involved with all this are, but the ultimate conclusion is that amidst all of them, there is none of these animals that are found to be like Adam, a helper, somebody who completes his aloneness or solves his aloneness. I mean, as much as you might like your dog or cat, and I'm sure they are very personal. <laughs> some people like their dogs. I, I won't name who they are, but Felipe may have some issues with his dog. Um, <laughs> people who... Um, People who have issues or who have, who have affectionate care, uh, life with your dog or cat, they are not the same. There is a, they don't match us in the exact way in which a human does. And that is the problem that this passage is seeking to resolve. When God creates the woman, what this passage is driving at is that she is more like the man than any creature in the world, right? When God creates a woman to, become, to come alongside and see the man and for the man to see the woman... What is most essential here is that when Adam sees her, he is responding to the amount of sameness that they share, right? Above all creatures in this entire world, above all the pets and dolphins and everything like that, 
there is more sameness between man and woman than there is difference, right? It, and I think that this is something helpful for us to respond to here is this passage draws us into this innate dignity of men and women. There is a yearning for us to know others, but there, know another, somebody who's different from us, but so similar to us. We often have this kind of cultural category of like men are from Mars and women are from Venus sort of thing of like men are just so crazy and women are just so different. And I'll just say, in my experience, none of the stereotypes about how men and women behave are ever actually true. Like, I would probably have ways in which for me, like in me and my wife's marriage, um, I am the much more emotive, emotional person. Whereas that's a stereotype of what women are like, for example. Um, and my wife, as you would probably know if you know her at all, is much more the rational, stoic, kind of mentally engaged person than I am, which is, you know, this whole men, stereotypes of how men and women are made. This passage draws us to begin to see there are, the stereotypes do not matter in the way God has made you to be a man or a woman. God has made you to be an image bearer of sameness to people who are different than you. So, along the lines of difference, let's just drop down into verse 21 to 23. We've seen our need for sameness. We need somebody that is like us, but then we need something, a, our need for difference. And that's what we're going to see here in verse 21 to 23. Sorry, I was looking over chapter 1 for a second there. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to him, brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. See, I, I, again, as we look at this passage, I'm just aware of, even from our conversations from our small group this last week, there are ways in which we sexualize this passage that are incredibly demeaning and unhelpful, and they become one of those neon signs on the side of the road. Remember, verse 18, it is not good that man is alone. And so when it comes to this passage, what Adam says in verse 23 is not kind of like, whoa, check out this woman in front of me. What he is responding to is we've just been through these verses that said there is nobody that shares sameness to Adam. There is nobody on this planet, no animal, no creature, nothing that shares sameness to Adam's image bearing. And so what God does is through this miracle of creation out of Adam's rib, whatever that looked like, I mean, I know how to do Legos and connects. I still can't figure out how you take a rib and turn that into a whole person. But I figure with God's economy, he can do that. He creates a sameness to Adam, but, that, but a sameness that is different to who he is. He's responding to, you see, verse 23, this at last. There's a sameness that I've been yearning for. This at last. You hear that desperation almost in the way he phrases this. This at last is somebody that is image-bearing just like I am. Somebody that has a reflection of the image of God in them, an incarnation of the image of God that is like mine, but it is different. Because you see, he goes on to say, this is bone of my bones. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
And you'll notice the man has not called himself anything up until this point. Adam has gone through and named all the creatures of this planet. And yet he has not named himself. And so it is in seeing somebody that is like him but different that he begins to know who he is. Oh, I'm different than you. You're image bearing. And I'm different from you. So I am a man and you're a woman. And this is a recognition of difference that helps him to identify who he is. Right, you'll notice that he doesn't even know exactly who he is, that he is alone until he sees, oh, there's somebody different from me here. That's now, it's, my aloneness has now been solved. There is a second incarnation of the image of God, a second I, a second consciousness that he is responding to. We need difference to know exactly who we are. And you'll notice that the difference is good. It's not bad that she's different from him. It's very good that she's different from him because he is very good also in the image of God. They share the image of God in masculine and feminine incarnations. And I, I can't quite confirm this, but it is interesting. This phrase, this at last is a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Some commentators have said that through the Old Testament, that's used as a royal phrase, um, a, basically a, a royal, like, naming dignity upon a king. So Laban says this to Jacob later in Genesis um, as a recognition of Jacob's kingship, so to speak. And so here we have Adam saying, here is somebody that I can rule with and be beside over God's creation, but they are made in the exact image that I share of God and yet different from mine. We need difference to know what it means to be who we are. In a very real sense, the man does not become fully human objectively or subjectively, until he has met with the woman, someone who is different and the same as he is. She too is not fully human until she has met with the man, having, identi having identity of herself as a woman distinct from him until she has met with the other. See, I think this helps us in recognizing that this passage is not about sexualizing this encounter between Adam and Eve. Right? It's not this kind of like erotic poem. It is a poem of identity and enjoyment and blessing before God. Man and woman, he created them. And here we have, rather than it being a poem about him responding to her beauty, it is responding to her dignity and identity as someone who shares the image of God. I am now fully human, so to speak, Adam says, with you who are fully human and different from me. Again, this is where I think that this helps us to see verse 18 is the governing thought in this passage. It's not good that Adam is alone. And when God provides different sameness to Adam, he responds in celebrating, I've seen the image of God in another person. This helps us again with uh, this last week, there were some things on the internet related to um, what women are made for. And this pastor who is an incredibly toxic person was commenting on how, yes, women were made to make the sandwiches, um, and that's the purpose that women serve. And I'm just like, that's not what the helper is made here. The woman's difference and sameness to Adam is responding to his yearning for being in community, not alone. The helper thing is not, hey, can you go make the food and do the laundry and all that? It's not even related to that. 
there is a dignity in who they both are. So let's look at verse 24 and 25, and then we'll get some commentary on, on, these passage, on, on this a little bit more. So we've looked at our need for sameness. We've looked at our need for difference. And then verse 24 to 25, our freedom and dignity. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So this one flesh dynamic is clearly a reference to sexual union, and that's clearly a part of this passage related to their marriage. But it says that the man shall leave, which speaks to the freedom of the man to give himself to her, and reciprocally, the woman's freedom to give herself to the man. You see, they, there, is a, there is a dignity in their freedom for each other. What Bonhoeffer would look at this passage and say is that to be human is innately to be for another. And so clearly this passage engages with the nature of marriage because it is about the freedom of being able to give myself, not under compulsion, not under any sort of pressure or duress, but freedom for another. And one of the ways in which that is expressed within, humans, uh, within the history of humanity is in the covenant of marriage, which clearly has other implications for the rest of the Bible. But the point is not so much to, to drill in on like, look how special marriage is to exclude people who aren't married. The point of the passage is to say there is a freedom in their dignity to give themselves for another, to give themselves for somebody else that is the same and different to them. There is, in a certain, a certain sense, a, a seed of what the life of the church is like in this passage where we are for each other in a committed for other people, but they are different from us in very radical ways. <laughs> Some of you are runners, and I would, I would not, I'm not even sure I would run across the street to get a hamburger. Like, I just, but there is a sameness and freedom in who we are. One of the things I want to draw in here at the end of verse 25 as we kind of think about this, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. We look at that and we think, we really begin to consider, what does it mean to be created, to be who we are, and to live without shame? That seems like an incredibly foreign idea. What even is going on there? Shame is a bit of like a, a weird word for us because we don't quite have the category for understanding what that, like in a shame-based culture where, you know, um, you have done, for example, with the rest in, in some of the Old Testament, if you do this or that, you are then shamed by the community and you have to do these sort of things to, be, to remove the shame from your life. You brought shame upon your family because you, know, you cheered for the Yankees or whatever, but how do we understand what shame is? Um, a book that I've kind of been working through slowly uh, is a book by Kurt Thompson, and he says this about the nature of shame. Researchers have described shame as a feeling that is deeply associated with a person's sense of self, apart from any interactions with others. Guilt, on the other hand, emerges as a result of something I have done that negatively affects someone else. Guilt is something I feel because I have done something bad. Shame is something I feel because I am bad. And so when you talk about this passage as saying, God made us to enjoy life together with other people without shame. 
he is saying in a very real way, we are made good in the image of God and there's nothing for us to hide. We don't have to hide anything about who we are. We don't have to um, kind of keep back or hold back anything from ourselves when God, makes, when God made Adam and Eve. The story is one of freedom, freely loved by God, freely intimate with a life differing, different, a like but different person. And there was nothing for them to hide on the inside or outside. When it says that they were both naked and unashamed, it is basically saying their inner story of being without shame matched their outer story of being without shame. There was nothing to hide, right? So it's not like this weird, awkward kind of like, they're both naked at a nude beach or something like that. Like that's not what this is about. This is about saying their inner story of being totally free, good, and enjoying God's good design for who they were as a man and a woman, there was nothing to hide. There was nothing to hold back from. There was nothing to kind of, I'll tell them later. And it matched their outer story as well. It said that there was a freedom for them and their dignity of what they were like, male and female, to be for each other. So we've seen here, verse 25, if you've if you're kind of been following along with me, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. They were same but different, free for each other, freely designed by God as a solution to verse 18. It is not good that man should be alone. So that's why we've been drawing at it is you are made to enjoy life-giving communion together. And you might even kind of draw that out to say you are made to enjoy life-giving communion together with people who are like but different to you because you are made to live without shame. This is, a, this is a solution to the not good that man is alone. The helper that God makes for him is a fully human woman beside him, objectively and subjectively, in communion with another that is like but different from him. We, we kind of covered some territory here, but I want, to, I want to turn now and give a few kind of reflections on this passage of what this means for us. You guys tracking? Cool? Okay. If not, feel free to text and say, that did not make any sense. <laughs> so, enjoying life-giving communion together. I think what this offers us is four invitations. An invitation to simple dignity as men and women. Uh, I don't know how long you've been around the church, uh, not necessarily King's Cross, but just church life in general. I've heard, um, I've heard and I've seen a lot of very bad messages related to what does it mean to be a man or a woman. I, I just want to acknowledge that this passage can touch on some very difficult experiences that we've maybe had in the church. Being demeaned because we don't feel like we measure up to what it means to be a woman, being feeling shamed because we don't feel like we measure up to what it means to be a man. There's a whole great deal of teaching on the whole idea of like what is biblical manhood and what is biblical womanhood. And it's not that I don't think that this passage doesn't have anything to say to what it means to be a man or a woman um, in terms of our sexuality and gender, but I don't think that that's the, the main driving focus of this passage. Does this passage tell us about gender roles? I think it does in some sort of corollary ways. But the main point that it drives at is that men and women are equal uh, in dignity and value as image bearers of God. That's the first primary starting point of what it means to be male or female, masculine or feminine. 
But making this passage, for example, primarily about authority and submission, so to speak, so some commentators will look to this passage and say, see, Adam names the, names the animals, Adam names the woman, he has authority, and she submits. I just think that's, a, that's not a very helpful reading of this passage because the primary governing passage going on here is aloneness met with communion, not, you know what, in order to be a man, Adam really needed somebody to, tell, to boss around, and so God made a woman. That, that's not what's going on in this passage. Adam names things, but it's primarily about self-discovery and realizing that he is an image bearer who needs, as a part of being an image bearer, somebody else that's an image bearer that's different. Um, I think going on here is that um, a part of being a man or a woman is that our discipleship in Jesus is primarily about being Christ-like, learning to be more Christ-like, growing to be more Christ-like, rather than what does it mean for you to be more of a biblical woman and more of a biblical man. Both of those directions are actually governed by what does it mean to be more like Jesus, rather than, I just don't see a lot in the New Testament about manhood or womanhood. There are things it says there, but it's more about what is it like, for example, we're going to end by looking at a little bit of Ephesians 5, where Christ self-giving for the sake of his people, that he is alike in being fully human and different from. He is holy, and we're not. That's the image of what it means to be fully human rather than masculine and feminine. Masculine and feminine. So I think that there's an, a simple dignity as men and women that this passage invites us into. Um, secondly, I think there's an invitation to an unsexualized community. Uh, I realize that the church has got lots of issues related to this whole category of how we, you know, think about men and women, but I will say also the church did not create Tinder, right? <laughs> There's a great deal of issues going on in our culture related to just hypersexualization of how we engage and talk to each other. And what this passage invites us into is to recognize, to, to respond to an invitation at, at the very nature of what it means to engage with people who are different and like us. So. Uh, men and women engaging with each other, there's an invitation to be a safe place for people that have had no safe relationships with men or women. It may be that you've had horrible experiences with men and you can't even trust them. You can't hardly begin to understand how you could be in a healthy relationship with any men at all. What this passage invites us into is a place to become men and women who recognize each other's dignity and value before we think about anything related to sex and romance. This passage invites us to be a safe place for people who can come and just be themselves and learn to be a holy new person in Jesus, forgiven of all their sins, renewed by the power of his spirit without being somebody that's on the market for a relationship. I, I, I will just so you know, I largely avoid, in every possible way, becoming any type of matchmaker for anybody. <laughs> this church exists so that people can learn how to be who they are in Jesus, renewed by the power of the Spirit, and it not be some place where we're trying to figure out how we can get them to go on a date with somebody. <laughs> I think this passage invites us to, to re reimagine what it means to be men and women who are like in so many ways in different and very obvious ways to be growing together in Jesus. In contrast to a culture around us that clearly, if you've ever looked through your Instagram feed, has some major weird stuff going on. 
just to be honest. Third thing I think here, and you've heard me say this in many ways, this is an invitation for each other. Our differences, this passage speaks of both gender differences and beyond, are for the purpose of being for another, right? At the nature of what it means for you to be an image bearer is for you to be for other people, right? To be an image bearer of God, to have his image um, written into your very DNA and who you are as a person. Bonhoeffer would say, this is what it means to be a human, to be for another image bearer. Whether that's in, uh, if you're married in a, in a marriage covenant, if, if you're single in your community with other people, if you're in a workplace for the people that you work for or work with, um, in your neighborhood, the people that literally live next, to it, next door to you, to be human is to be for other people, right? So this is, a, in, a, in a very real sense, against isolating from other people. It is not good for your humanity to be isolated from other people. If there's anything the pandemic has taught us, it's that it's not good to be quarantined forever. I get the quarantine for some time, but it's not good to be isolated from other people. It is written into who you are to be for other people. Let me close with this, and then I'm gladly engage with some questions. This is, I think, also an invitation for life-giving repentance. This passage ends with a statement that seems absolutely ludicrous. They were both naked, and I think more importantly, they were not ashamed. When you read that, do you just kind of like, as your wheels start turning of like, what does it, what does it mean? What is it like to live an existence a day, a week, without any sense of trying to hide who you are or hide from other people, to live without any sense of shame? What is it like to not have to think about the things that I need to hide, avoid those aspects of conversation, avoid those aspects of talking about those things with other people or revealing who I am to other people? We all have good reasons to hide things. There's the sins that we've done, certainly. There's things that we don't want to reveal, talk about, engage with. There's things that have been done to us that we feel we've been sinned against. And so those are the things where we want to hide from other people because we can't trust them or feel safe with other people. We have a lot of ways in which we can experience shame. This passage tells us two things. We were made to live without shame. This is something that we should long for, to live without shame. And it also points us in the direction of the way we get there. Paul's going to pick up this passage here in Ephesians 5, and I want to read it, but I want to read it in a way that you see how it connects to this passage for all of us and not just for husbands. Can we turn to Ephesians 5 here? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, this is Paul quoting from the very passage that we're looking at right now, 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul ends by saying, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that refers to Christ and the church. When Paul looks at this passage, he sees sameness and difference. He sees a freedom of, and dignity of giving yourself for the good of another person. And he says, that is in seed form what Christ ultimately does for us. Because when Jesus looks at us, he says, there's a sameness. These are my brothers and sisters that I share a body with, that I am incarnate like, that I live a human life like, that I am just like, but there's a difference. They are not holy and I am perfectly holy. There is a freedom of Jesus to give himself for us so that in his bond and union with us and in his commitment for us, he gives us himself. He gives us himself at the cost of his own life so that we could then become just like him, united with him, one with him, becoming like Jesus. See, so rather, this is a picture for the way husbands and wives relate, but more importantly, and it relates to the, at, the, at the baseline human level, it is Jesus freely giving himself for, some, for the church, for us that is different to him, so that we could be like him, to make us pure and holy and new in him, so that as we think about all the ways in which we have violated other people's dignity, where we have reasons to be ashamed, where we have treated men and women without care or appropriately, where this passage provokes us to consider, how have I not treated with men or women with dignity? Or how have I not been treated with dignity by them? We have somebody in Jesus who has given his life for us so that we could be free from shame in him, confessing our faults and shame and sin, but receiving in him new life that we might become one with him. I know that there is a lot of things that we could say about this passage. I, as I was preparing this, I was like, there's like four or five sermons here that we could all just kind of drill in on. I think at the core of this passage is an invitation to be renewed in Jesus so that we can recognize that we are made different from each other, that there is a sameness that we share with each other, but in Jesus we are, we are called to experience a life-giving communion together. Let's pray. Father, as we've looked at this passage and considered all the things that are said here, would you help us, help us to see the sameness that we have in common with each other, the differences that we share, and the way in which you have called us into freely giving ourselves to you and to each other. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.